Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this podcast, my guest and I will be discussing religious accommodations in the academic environment. Through AAVMC's previous climate surveys, we know that spiritual life is certainly a component of academic veterinary medicine. As colleges seek not to just become more diverse in terms of representation, but also more inclusive, there is a growing recognition around the need for ways to accommodate religious and spiritual practice in the academic environment. A recent informal survey of our member institutions found that requesting religious accommodation was relatively easy and that there are a myriad of approaches to meeting the needs of students and faculty, including excused absences, exam rescheduling, lecture capture, and quiet places for prayer and reflection. But as one commenter noted, although accommodations may be easily granted, there can be some real taboos around making the request in the first place. One recent policy development that kind of also shapes this discussion is the passage and soon to be implementation in the state of Washington of a piece of legislation that mandates religious accommodation at all colleges and universities in the state. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means as well. So today we are delighted to welcome Cody Nielsen, founder and executive director of Convergence on Campus, as well as Dr. Hilda Meha Brew at Michigan State. Welcome. Thank you. Hello. Hi. So as is our practice, Cody, I am going to ask you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Really excited to be on the show with you all and for all of those listeners out there that are taking the time out of their busy schedule to to take time to listen to this podcast. I'm really excited. A little bit of information. As Lisa, as you said, I'm the founder and executive director of Convergence on Campus. We are a about 21-month-old organization that is founded out of Minneapolis. I am, by credentialing, an ordained United Methodist clergy, though pretty agnostic at this point in my life. And Convergence came about because in 2011, I started working at the University of Minnesota and worked there from 2011 to 2017 as the Methodist-related campus minister. And while I was there, there were around 5,000 Muslim students and around 2,000 Jewish students that didn't have kosher or halal options on campus, which sort of led me down a road of working with campus administration to seek accommodations through policy and practice, a research study that it would eventually encompass 150 schools across the U.S. and Canada, and a real sense that where I was going with, with the professional career that I was looking at is to think on a systematic approach toward accommodation. And this now is what led to the creation of Convergence. And our focus is on both higher education and in the public sector. So a lot of our work kind of started in higher education, but has spurred on to public policy, like the bill that you talked about briefly and that we'll get to later. And also now looking in terms of professional corporate settings, because what we have seen is an awful lot of work around diversity and inclusion, training that's taking place, but there's a whole myriad of challenges that exist around what we now call religious, secular, and spiritual inclusion. So I'm sure that we'll get to more of that in a little bit here. 
Great. Wonderful. Welcome to the show. We're really delighted to have you. And I am so excited. Yay. We have a third person that's joining us. Bill Darnell from Washington State. Hi. Sorry, I was hung up. I was hung up in hangout. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Hilda. Why don't we have you go next with introductions, and then Bill, we will come back and have you tell us a little bit about yourself as well. Sure, I'm Dr. Hilda Mejia Abreu. I am delighted to be on this podcast, Lisa and listeners. Thank you for inviting me. I serve at Michigan State University as the Associate Dean for Admissions, Student Life and Inclusivity. And as you can see, inclusivity is part of my work. So this topic is very dear and near to my heart. I hold a PhD in Higher Education Administration from Michigan State and a graduate degree in Public Policy from the University of Massachusetts. I also, I have a background in social science. Inclusivity work has been my life commitment and work from pipeline development to veterinary medicine, from different groups to attract faculty and staff from various backgrounds, which includes religion, gender, socioeconomic background, first generation. So I'm I'm quite passionate about the work that I do, but creating spaces where people feel included is very important to the goals and the values that we espouse at Michigan State College of Veterinary Medicine. So I'm delighted. To, to speak with you today. And I know that Lisa has quite a few questions for us, so we hope to address all of them. But thank you for having me on this show. Thank you so much. Welcome, welcome. Bill, I'm so glad that you were able to join us at the top of the show. I mentioned that you all have a new bill, a new law that will be going into effect very, very soon on mandating religious accommodation. But in the And we will certainly get to that. But why don't you tell the, our listeners a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Lisa. So I'm uh, presently the Associate Dean for Student Academic Affairs at WSU, Washington State University. Took this post about going on three years ago. Uh, Prior to that was uh, Department Chair of Veterinary Clinical Sciences, which is the department that manages the clinical, both teaching and clinical aspects of our teaching hospital. So I had some experience with the subject, I guess, um, during that time especially during the fourth year, because that's oftentimes when these things come up. Looking forward to the discussion today. Uh, my office, myself, I guess, uh, being <laughs> the sole uh, faculty member in my office, we manage all aspects of the program, including non-diversity. And so it is something that's under my under my guidance. And it is something that I have a passion for and, and a lot of interest in. I could have to, have to say that at WSU, we are, you know, somewhat, I would say, even in the infant stages of developing how we deal with diversity. I mean, we've always been sensitive to it. We've always responded to it, we feel, in, in right manner, you know, based on experiences of our peers and our own experiences at the university in the state of Washington. But um, it is it is a new area in, in development of, of how we move forward. The, the great news for us is that we're, we're in the process of undergoing a major curricular review and then stepping that into a curricular reform, I guess I'd call it. And so we have great opportunity to build some of these things into our curriculum as we go forward. You know, we refer to them oftentimes as threads. You know, can we start with some real baseline information which we do now during orientation of our first-year students, 
and build on that as they go through the program to give them more information about this, respond to them, respond to their needs, and, and also get them more involved in areas of diversity. So I think it's a, you know, it's, it's a great time for us. And so we're excited about coming up with some ideas, necessarily inventing new wheels, but taking advantage of what's out there and what some of the other uh, institutions are doing. Great. Well, welcome to the show. So excited. So why don't we dive right on in to Hilda and Bill. And Hilda, I'm going to pitch this to you first. At Michigan State, what is the current process for requesting specifically like a religious accommodation at the college? How do you do that? Sure. MSU as a whole has a policy to honor religious accommodation requests. So each year we remind the faculty and the entire community that requests for accommodation should be observed, either faculty, staff, and students. So it's inclusive of everyone. And we try to remind everyone to take those requests at face value. And the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs is usually involved in those requests. And students are encouraged to feel free to go directly to the faculty and make those arrangements. Those requests can be very difficult at times, especially when we might feel that our request for accommodation will be challenged because we don't know how the faculty is going to react to it. So what we tell our students is to make sure that they don't have to explain. So if I am a Catholic person, if I need Good Friday off, I should be able to go to my boss and say, on Good Friday, I will be out of the office because of my religious observance. And I don't have to explain anything. It should be acknowledged and granted. And that's what we do with our students. And faculty and students usually make those arrangements on their own. But I have to tell you that that has not happened overnight. It has been a culture that was created and I'm going to give credit where credit is due. My predecessor, Ms. Patricia Lowry, tried to create a culture of inclusiveness with our faculty and students. So it didn't happen overnight. It took time. But our faculty, I believe, is there. And the university actually reminds all of us on September the 4th, that's when that memo comes out, and says this is what needs to be done. And you should take those requests at face value without any questioning. And you need to be respectful of faculty, staff, and students. So that we're reminded. Then it's negotiated between the faculty and the students. When the student doesn't feel comfortable, I actually get involved. If they come to me and I say, let's do it together. Let me give you the tools. So it's on a case-by-case basis. What I have to add, though, that we did not have a reflective space for our Muslim students. So they had to go home, maybe, or maybe walk across campus 25 minutes. We were able to, the students survey the students, and we were able to assess whether or not there was any, and there was a huge need. So now we have reflective space for everyone that needs it, including myself when I need to take a break and go and pray which oftentimes I have to do because as an associate dean, it's a challenging job. <laughs> so I can drive to church to do that and reflect. So that's the process that we have here, Lisa, and I hope you have answered the question. Yeah, absolutely. And yay for self-care. Yes. So, so. 
Mm. So what is the process at Washington? And is that process changing or evolving as a result of the new law? I guess it remains to be seen whether it'll change with the new law. And I think the way that we handle it now will likely cover that because I think we err on the more, I can say, more liberal side in making these accommodations, you know, just like Phil said, at face value and working with them as much as we can. There are some that are that are more challenging than others, especially as they say when we get to the fourth year, clinical year, just because they... You know, they involve experiences, potentially limiting the students learning through those experiences because of the foundation. So those are the tough ones mm-hmm. to work through. But I'd love to see how the law affects some of those because those could be a concern. But probably not when we're dealing with, with the religious diversity and, and the accommodations there. Basically, our process is that if students need an accommodation, which really is because of our tenants policy being open, meaning there are only certain aspects of the curriculum that are required, laboratories um, by default are required. We do not, uh, well, final you know, final exams uh, in courses are required. We do not allow them, you know, at least normally to be missed. There are some of the, the other experiences, experiential learning that are required. So it's uh, the students know when they go into the program what things are required, what they will have to request a petition basically for an ex- what we call a petition for excuse absence. That's we bring them you know, into that into that fold and orientation, let them know that that's the way that it works and we constantly remind them of that, as do faculty and we remind the faculty uh, periodically because they sometimes forget the process. But it's all online now. So basically a student goes to a student services website, they go on the link, it's also linked within the attendance policy that's on the website. Mm-hmm. And it leads them to a to a menu and then it's basically drop down what's the reason for your excused absence and some of them are preset you know like family emergency family or personal emergency uh, wedding which is one of our accommodation things we try to work with in this case it, you know especially if someone was requesting to be to miss a required exercise because of you know a, a um, religious holiday or some other event or just something that is regularly built into their faith then they would just fill that out into another category right in the text. This is what I'm requesting these, the dates I'm requesting it, you know, that asks them what are they going to be missing, what what required exercise they're going to be missing. They usually fill out the whole thing, even if the lectures are not required, things like that, but they let us know what they're going to be missing. And then it asks them to, to come up with uh, an idea of how they would make up that, that missing experience, mm-hmm. uh, whether it be an exam or a, laboratory or whatever. So it kind of puts it on the student to think about this ahead of time, plan ahead of time. Obviously, we we require it to happen uh, four weeks in advance of, of any absence, but we don't hold to that very often. <laughs> Sometimes these are last minute requests. I totally understand things come up. Certainly, family emergencies, health emergencies, those are automatic. In fact, it, it doesn't even route through our attendance committee it is an auto, they get an automatic message that you are excused and please communicate your absence with student services. And mm. they're really good about following up on that. So that's, okay. that's, that takes a lot of them out of it. Yeah. But, if it but if it is something that really we have, that they have to work, because we, you know, what, what I tell students is, okay, if you have an emergency, you do what you need to do. Whenever you get a chance and you can, you fill out that petition. It'll be automatically accepted, but we want to have that record of it. 
And it's on us to figure out how to get you to, to be able to make up that material and sure. communicate with them. That's on sure. us. Okay. It's more of a requested, okay, this is something that's new. I, got, I want to go to this meeting because I'm going to be speaking. These kind of things. Then the attendance committee will look at that. I always review it first to make sure that, you know, it isn't, we're not starting to, to push that envelope and maybe I can help the student work through some of those things, especially if it's a really required exercise that's difficult to make up. And then it goes to the attendance committee for their opinion. I want the attendance committee, you know, in any request for uh, absence to look at it unbiased from the standpoint of I'm not, I'm not trying to consider what it will take to do a makeup here for the student. I'm considering whether what the student is requesting is reasonable, whether what they're going to miss is a reasonable trade off what they're needing to do. What's happening? So. Um, it, it works pretty well. I think it involves me a lot. I mean, on the front end, uh, but at the same time, I know what's going on with the students. It helps me a lot, and I can communicate them up front with them up front and with instructors if I see problems with makeups. And we can smooth this, smooth the process, and and you know, talk about you know, faculty pushback and these things. Usually, those the faculty are already in the loop. Got you know, it. Just just like Bill was saying, in their case, MSU they go to faculty first. We go to well, our student services yeah. committee, and then back to the faculty to mm-hmm. have the discussion. So the faculty now have an idea of, okay, this is being supported by the college. Okay, I need to respond. Yes, got it. So Cody, so just to kind of give a little bit of background, yeah. I met Cody at a diversity conference earlier this year where he was leading a discussion on this topic. And I asked him this question. I don't know if you remember, but I was like, hey, we're in this, you know, at graduate and professional curricula, particularly in medical school where the curriculum tends to be just so lockstep that it's very hard sometimes for folks to feel like they can step away even when they need to. How do we kind of work this? How do we make this happen to kind of create environments where clearly we have a couple of our wonderful administrators who are trying to figure out ways of kind of creating that environment where folks can be successful, have their kind of spiritual life enhancement accommodated. But we also know that still that's it's hard, right? <laughs> In some right. ways. So how do, you know, so so give us a little bit of thoughts on what you just heard and kind of what ways can not only our colleagues here, but colleagues listening might be able to do this, do this thing. Sure. I really appreciate that. And I appreciate both Bill and Hilda's comments because they represent for, for me two strikingly different ways to handle the approach that have both been employed in certain venues. And both of them have, based on what our experience is, both some really helpful pieces and admittedly some challenges that exist. And I think the first thing that I want to say is that I totally agree that there are really serious challenges that exist. And obviously in veterinary school programs, I think that this sort of culminates. And Bill, you mentioned it. When you get to that fourth year and you start getting to some of those experiences that are really consequential for students to miss. One of the reasons why we were involved in helping to pass this law has a lot to do with what both of you have sort of said, both quietly and verbally, and that is that historically, it is the student's responsibility to advocate on behalf of themselves. 
And the problem that we have found is that among students, this is a traumatization that perpetually is occurring. Mm. When all, you know, in, in so many cases that we have come across, many of the marginalized religious students that we have been, that we have interacted with have been heavily questioned by mm-hmm. faculty, that they have approached faculty, or in many cases, there have been many students who just have not approached faculty for fear of hostility and reprisal. Like, you know, what is it that's go- that this faculty will do if I ask for this accommodation? Passage of this bill in Washington State, which is called SB 5166, which is just, you know, just as basically like whatever you know, the number for this bill in the state bill is meant to eliminate that fear of traumatization by standardizing a set of policies and practices across the institution. Even if a university says that they handle this issue on a case-by-case basis, if one case of one student is handled in this particular manner and another case is handled in a different particular manner, it is still a civil rights issue that exists within the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. And I really appreciate what you said, Bill, is that like, if a student, I think both of you, both of you said, if a student comes, they are expected to be accommodated for. The question is, how far will that accommodation go? And in the case of what you said, Bill, the one thing that I get nervous about when we hear from students is that there are often these situations of laboratory, you know, like consequence, basically anything of significant consequence, testing being the most likely in laboratory testing and things like this. So the goal of what we do and the goal of this bill is to be proactive. We are attempting to work with institutions to overlay a series of what we call blackout days into the academic calendar, utilizing the major religious holidays. So thinking in the Jewish setting of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Passover, thinking of Christian holidays like Good Friday, because Easter and Christmas we're already off for, thinking about in, in Hinduism of things like Diwali and Holi, And of course, looking at the unique accommodations that are necessary around Ramadan, but also being very cautious around Eid and thinking about Eid as, you know, two similar holidays. And this is just the sort of beginning because Hinduism has more than this, (laughs) Buddhism, Sikhism, all of these different traditions that we see. What we are attempting to do is to encourage academic calendars to be set with a series of blackout days where campus-wide faculty do not hold any consequential testing on these specific days. Now, this is not every day. This is the agency of East of the Faith communities giving back feedback and saying, what are the most important days that we would be consequentially missing classes in large numbers And how do we help on the sort of both sides of the aisle, both on the faculty side and on the student side? 
to mitigate this issue. Because I 100% want to stand on the side of faculty who are just simply trying to educate and prepare these students for the next step. Mm -hmm. And legally, we all have to be on the side of our students about what is their religious accommodations. All right. So that's a really nice kind of setup thinking about, well, we won't have kind of consequential (laughs) make or break, (laughs) live or die kind of academic events, if you will, on on certain days. I'd love to kind of hear from you, Hilda and and Bill, kind of what that might look like. And and especially, I mean, you know, what is that still, we still kind of bump up against things like what happens in clinical rotations. Mm -hmm. Yes. So if I may just comment on what Cody stated, and thank you, Cody, that was so well done. And actually, I feel that that is a dream comes through. If we could get a calendar where we can, the major days, they can be blackout and say this is when we might not hold a midterm or a final so that we can observe and respect others in terms of their needs for accommodation. I think that would be ideal. And I don't know that we'll get there very fast, especially in a medical curriculum, but I am hopeful about the following. I'm hopeful that given the importance of diversity and inclusion, but more so inclusion, the faculty are at a different place, most of them, at least in medical school. And I can speak for my medical school. When I was at a previous school, it was a nursing school. I feel that if students are able to plan, and that's why we actually say students, let us know so that we can be proactive in this process. I think that we will get there sooner rather than later. However, like you said, Cody, I am on the side of the faculty because their business is to educate. And the yeah. business of the student is to learn. So together, it has to be a team effort between faculty and students, not faculty against students or student against faculty. It is a collaboration of both. For example, I know that I have quite a few students that are Jewish. So I often go to the committee, to the uh, planning of the calendar, and I said, on this day, can we please look at these days, these are important days. But I am coming from the student affairs side to make Mm -hmm. our faculty that is very focused on the curriculum aware of these seven days during the fall that we might want to stay away from, including MLK. We have a big celebration with the medical school, Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, and we have been Mm -hmm. doing this for the past two years. It's actually on the academic calendar because we want our students to collaborate and to be there. I think it's being intentional in how mm. we plan this. And that's mm-hmm. why I said planning those blackout days or the days mm-hmm. that you want to block that we want to block so that nothing important is occurring is going to have to be done intentionally and with all hands on deck, inclusive of provost, deans, and president so that we can get there. I really like that goal, and I think yeah. it will happen, but we have to be intentional about making that happen. How do we convince some of our colleagues that my question, the fact that I have to take Good Friday off, mm-hmm. and the way I have been very 
you know, for me, my religion is number one, family, and then work. And I have told people, I must be a way to be a good citizen of our team and to collaborate. Otherwise, I will not be happy and my mother will disown me and I won't be happy with myself. (laughs) I think having those courageous conversations are really important. It's very difficult for a student at 17 to do that. Because believe me, I didn't do it when I was a freshman at the University of Massachusetts. So we, as the educators, the advisors, the supporters, we can help our students navigate those difficult channels because they're difficult, Mm -hmm. because it's intimidating. Hilda, you just became a spokesperson for the way and reason why we as an organization focus our efforts with professionals. There are not a lot of organizations that are in this sort of space, but the ones that sort of have existed before our time have spent much of their time focused on sort of the student empowerment. And our sort of response to it is the student empowerment is not working. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes that sense of advocacy. And it's why I will admit to you that I kind of feel like the way in which Bill talked about Washington State, that sort of like heading back to the faculty and to the dean and to the administrative side is so imperative to this because Mm -hmm. In the end, your students can only go to bat for themselves for so long. I mean, that's the, I mean, isn't that classical like change theory that you need an outside entity mm-hmm. to become the advocate for that, you know, that group and community that which is marginalized or being threatened? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, I mean, I would actually go so far as to, to say that the, the onus should be kind of on the institution, one, because when we talk about systems change and we talk about even systems of oppression, it's really always institutional, right? That's what really makes it an ism. And it's really that power dynamic that sets up whether or not people feel even just on a day-to-day basis comfortable kind of saying, hey, I really kind of need this and I need it to, to Hilda's point to be a good person, not just to be a good person for, you know, I won't, go out and kill people, but just to be a good person in this community, a fulfilled person and a part of the community, this is what I'm bringing with me. And how do we create space for that? So, Lisa, can I say something? Because you hit on something that if we want happy students, we need to be student-centered. And you're right, Cody, that it's important to make sure that the administration is supporting our students because we brag about how great we are, but let's show the example of how great we are. And this whole reflective space at Michigan State that we created that space, it wasn't driven by Hilda. It was actually driven by the students that are part of the diversity committee. They're part of the diversity and inclusion committee. They created their own survey. They asked me to help. And believe me, they ask for it. So they're going to drive it, but it takes a level of confidence and maturity that nobody's going to retaliate. And they fully had the support of the faculty on the diversity committee. So uh, Cody, you make some very good point about we need to drive it as the administrators and we need to be held accountable. So, Bill, I kind of wanted to to touch base on back with you. So, this thing is going in. You've got this 
great kind of electronic way of of submission, but it's going through. You got folks in clinics, <laughs> Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and many other holidays are shortly upon us. You got those fourth years. What are you going to do? <laughs> well, the fourth the fourth years, it's a different process. So I, I guess I didn't clarify that. So the first two third years go through the petition for excused absence. Fourth years, uh, basically, they would go to the to the faculty first to you know bring something up. You know, I need to be gone for this day, and they they all have personal uh, personal days that they can take during the senior year, so that gives them fun, some flexibility. Most like to reserve those for interviews and things like that. We have a, a built-in policy that you can miss up to ten percent of a rotation, you know, so basically one day in, in two week rotations or two days in a four week rotation without compromise. Um, so that can be for really, for really almost any reason. We encourage the fourth year students to communicate with, with the, the clinician on char- in charge according to that, because obviously it, it not only impacts them as a student from their educational standpoint, but also impacts the, the function of the clinical rotation. Yeah. It also impacts patient can impact patient care, which is always at the top of our priority list and things like that. So there needs to be communication. And they, you know, I act as a default. So the faculty typically, if they get a question, and I'm, you know, I'm a clinician by trade, I was this department chair for those people, you know, for nine years. So they feel really comfortable coming back to me and saying, hey, you know, the student came to me with this request. What do I do with it? And then we, we, we have the conversation to kind of talk through it. I would say that, you know, very rarely is there ever that we have any faculty that are not, you know, 100% supportive in trying to figure something out that will work under their specific circumstances. And, you know, I appreciate Cody, you know, trying to move away from the case by case. And certainly that that applies much better during our first three years where we could be a little bit more programmatic and planned out in, in absences and, and, you know, things the students are accommodated for. It's a little harder in the fourth year because you almost do need to do case by case basis. Sometimes it ma- it matters week to week. You know, some yeah. some weeks are really not very busy, and hey, you know, yeah, being on a Friday, no big deal. But then some weeks it's like, oh my gosh, we got six surgeries and all that stuff. So mm. we we do have to approach it kind of individualized. But you know, for the most part, we work with the students, and just like Hilda said, you know, we go into it like we're going to make this work. Okay, going to figure out a way to do it, and if absolutely we can't make it work, we got to look to, you know, plan B, plan C. And it's the same thing with any accommodation. You know, we get a request, basically all of our accommodations, regardless of what they are, go through the access. And they're usually physical, you know, emotional, mental uh, issues. Go through our, our, with our campus access center. They are the ones, they are the go-between between the, the student and health providers to kind of come up with, a okay, what do we need to do to help the student to level the playing field for the student then they come back to us, the access center comes back to us, says this, these are the accommodations we would suggest. We have a conversation with them to say, okay, this is no problem. We can work with this. We've done this many times. Uh-oh, here's a new one. Not sure how we're going to work with this. Let's try to come up with a game plan. Maybe that's an individual game plan for a particular student. Maybe it's a game plan that, that you know, is, is program-wide. So we, we have that flexibility and backup. We have this entity working for us. I can say that Anything that comes from the top at WSU, i.e. from the president's office or for the pro, from the provost's office, you know, it's like, okay, if, 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 so if the president came up and said, these are the blackout dates that we've, you know, that we are requesting or requiring whatever based on, you know, accommodation of this law, 
great. <laughs> you know, our faculty, you know, they get that memo from the provost or president and they're going to do it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, give you an example, it's kind of a silly example, but, you know, we had, there was one year, a couple of years ago, where we had a couple of afternoon football games because of the whole ESPN schedule, you know, Pac-12. <laughs> anyway, the president said, okay, you know, we need to clear out campus. We need to allow for this game to occur, and this is a big deal. So, you know, we're canceling classes for the afternoon of this particular Thursday. And, you know, faculty and our cousin go, wait a minute. Well, we did it. We figured out a way to do it, you know, alternate parking and all this kind of stuff for clinical rotation. It was a big deal, but you know what? You know, this is an important aspect for the university. If it's coming from the university down, it's going to be done. Yeah. It sounds like there's an interesting way of kind of making this work across campuses. So one is this piece of potentially having these blackout dates, again, for those high impact kind of academic activities. So tests, exams, all of those kinds of things. And then it seems like having an attendance policy that actually recognizes that people are not machines <laughs> is also really important. And so one of the things that I noted, though, and I know that every school has its own, you know, academic attendance policy. Some have dress codes. They have all kinds of things uh, as I travel from school to school. But one of the things that I found really interesting is what you were describing around the, the clinical rotations is that time off which I think having that built in creates some of that space, right? That necessary space, whether it's, you know, the reality of sick days versus whatever it is that you need for a personal day, including spiritual or religious observation, there's just fundamentally some time that's that's built in. And I think that those two things together really kind of probably could bring all of us a lot closer to, I think, some of the goals that, that Cody has laid out. And, and just like Washington State, we also have that time that students, during clinical rotation, they can take so many times, so many days off. So there is that flexibility there. I, I should say that for our preclinical students, we try to get our diversity committee members that are students to speak to them about the various policies that we have that might accommodate for religious accommodation. And just like Washington State, any other accommodation, physical or learning disability, that goes to the main campus. But religious accommodation is part of the diversity and inclusion portfolio, if you will. So they, those students work with us. So during orientation, we, we talked about the various policies that we have. Great. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask, and I'll start with you, Cody, what role does reflective spaces kind of play in this conversation? So there's this piece around kind of just the the time accommodation, but what is the role and importance, I guess, of having just a physical space where people can kind of go? I think that's really, I I really appreciate the question. I'm going to expand it just a little bit to kind of talk about sort of a larger ecosystem. So what we've seen on a lot of college campuses is that when sort of put in a corner or requested, what often happens is that the first line of like accommodation will often be these prayer and meditation spaces. They often come as a request from the Muslim community, which is not surprising because of the Muslim practice of five prayers a day. 
But universities can fall very quickly into a trap. And I like that you are using the word reflective space. Because if you create a prayer space for the Muslim community, you have moved the establishment clause of the First Amendment to the establishment clause from Christian hegemony to Muslim identities only. And while this often feels like a positive response by a lot of administrations, the challenge is, of course, just as sort of Hilda as we kind of comically responded to it, but it's a serious thing. Reflective spaces are not just for Muslim students. Buddhist and Hindu students pray nearly as often as Muslim students, have a, have a significant religious practice, and even non-religious humanists, atheists, agnostics, and yes, as well, Christians, including Hilda herself, coming from the Catholic perspective within Christianity, often seek reflective prayer, and meditation spaces. As a part of this, we see this as one of what Convergence calls one of our four pillars of institutional policy and practice. And it falls under what we call the infrastructure pillar, that there must be physical environments on campus that respond to the distinct needs. If there are three specific areas, it's the academic accommodations that we've talked about, it's the prayer and meditation and reflective spaces that we're looking at. And reaching a little bit further, it's also the, typically the dietary options that are necessary, constrained within dining halls, or at least optional within whatever setting. So with these reflective spaces, there's one cre key and really critical piece that's there. The space must be neutral in all times and places for mm -hmm. students, and it cannot be reserved at least not if it's going to be successful. It cannot be reserved because in doing so, you're kind of defeating the point. If it gets scheduled with all of these different events for these communities, then the openness towards reflection is eliminated. So we think about storage space and the need to, to both create the space, communicate the space, and then maintain the space with the proper items. So that may be icons that are historically tied to traditions, prayer mats, prayer and reflective pieces, all of these things that are necessary, but they also need to be stored. So I'll stop there. And Cody, I am so glad that you spoke about reflective spaces because the word reflected, we actually used it intentionally because it's a space for not only Catholic like myself, but for all other members of the community some of my very close colleagues and friends, some of them are atheists. And they might need to use that space just to go and say, huh, oh God, I need to get away from this. because I Or maybe that. not, oh God. Yeah. <laughs> maybe not, oh God. Or maybe, oh God. So I think it's important to really differentiate that it's not a church, it's not a synagogue, it's not, it is a reflective space, exactly what it's called. The other thing that I, I think you commented in terms of the items, the only thing that we, and this was intentional, that we only have a very comfortable rug, a chair, it cannot be reserved, and a way to log in how many people have been there without name, because we don't want to know names, so we want to know that the space is being utilized. Mm -hmm. Because the space was created just about eight months ago, it has been very, very popular 
by faculty, staff, and students. So mm-hmm. we are right now creating a second one right. near the classroom space because this one is in the clinic. Because right now I actually have been there a few times and I have to wait because it cannot be reserved. Mm-hmm. So I, I I appreciate your comment on the name of the place so that we can make sure that we're accommodating everyone. Yeah. So in our informal survey, we had a number of schools that indicated that they have spaces. But one of the things that we found was that to your point, Cody, some institutions said, oh, absolutely, there's a place for our Muslim students to go pray. (laughs) So there's that. Or that the place is, oh, it's only a 20 minute walk. And I'm like, but our students are in class (laughs) for this many hours a day. (laughs) They get an hour, you know, they have a, they have a bio break. They've got an hour to, you know, cram a tuna fish sandwich. They don't have time to get to the 20 minute space. I mean, you know, it'd be great if they could walk over, but they can't. And then you've got some schools where it's not even a 20 minute walk. It's a couple of miles away because again, at most vet schools, we take up a lot of space. So we're <laughs> far flung on the edge of campus <laughs> away from things. And so, you know, kind of even how we are thinking about what these spaces look like and really what access to the space is, there's still a wide kind of chasm around or between kind of the reality of, of being able to utilize such a space versus its its existence. And I'd like to make a comment. One of the things that I read in the survey that we sent out to our students and faculty and staff is the fact that some of our colleagues were praying in a bathroom because of meditating in a bathroom. And to me, would you want to do that? And to me, that is not a place of inclusivity. And I felt appalled that I read those comments. And it was not just our students because our vet tech staff do not have offices. So I was deeply concerned reading the results and saying, oh my God, we need to do something. The same thing with non-gender neutral bathrooms. So I, I became deeply concerned when I read that because I would not want to reflect in a restroom. I would want to reflect in a place that is clean and and just where people don't go to the bathroom. So I yeah. was I was very concerned reading that. So I just wanted to share that with you because yeah. that is a place that is not inclusive. Yeah. It's it's kind of like the the breastfeeding question about, you know, folks kind of having to pump and in a restroom and how, you know, you're creating food and <laughs> Yeah, well, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Bill, does WSU have a reflective space now, or are there any plans to create one if you don't? No, we not the the veterinary college doesn't. I mean, they do on campus, and you know, I mean, I, we might have students. Honestly, I don't know. We might have students in the first three years that would use that reflective space. For us, our campus is so tight and small, and we are we are we are in the campus. It's a five minute walk at the most, but you know, still we have weather, we have hills. You know, it's a little bit more complicated and certainly not a 20 minute walk. And, you know, that would only work if you really can reflect on the 20 minutes there and the 20 minutes back because you're going to have about three minutes while you're there. Um, so we, we need to look at that. We have, we do have a lactation room. And so that was set up again by student request. Mm-hmm. And we certainly were willing to accommodate that. We have a, a, a specific room that was set up for um, service dogs. 
which we have one uh, this year, fourth year, or fourth year in the clinic and, and one last year. Um, so we'll have to continue to look at that. So because the request does not come forward for a quiet space for religious accommodation, we haven't gone there yet, but it's certainly on the radar mm-hmm. to do that. Of course, a problem we always have, and I'm sure the MSU is the same way, is space. Right. Uh, yeah. We, you know, initially, when we had the lactation request, um, we we ended up clearing out a faculty office for a while. I mean, not clearing it out. It was empty at the time, but we used the faculty office for a while. And then we, you know, we were able to move into some additional space. So we we have that struggle always. Right. But at the same time, it's, it's all, it's a matter of priority, right? So if, right. If this is if the priority for the students. And, and it is, regardless of whether there's a law or not, if this mm-hmm. is important for their well-being, and it's not just for one particular student at a particular time, this is more universal, you know, we, we need to make that happen. Yeah. Bill, you're right. Space is a real challenge. One of the things that I have found is that the number of people using the space, because we ask just to put in visit of the day, faculty, staff, or students, I find that the number of staff and students are probably about the same, which is very interesting. I was surprised to find out the staff is actually using the space as much mm-hmm. as our students. So... You might be doing a great service to your teammates. Well, I think that that illuminates a couple of key pieces of this. One, culture shift requires us to also understand that it is staff and faculty that are also having these same pieces that are going on. The uncomfortability, the sort of like sort of closed offness that we have and this taboo that we have a talking about our religious, secular, and spiritual identities on campus, it starts with the culture of those that are sort of the institutional pillars. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important for us to come out, for us to deal with the intrinsic biases that we hold as staff and administrators, because until we've done that work, we're never going to get to that systems level approach. The other piece that I think that is out there with what you said, Hilda, is the question of how you said this has been really popular. We often think, and I said, I think I said this a minute ago, we often think that there are three steps to doing these sort of reflective or any form of accommodational spaces. You have to create the space. But what we often find is that institutions will create a space that sort of haphazardly throw together a space when at the last minute a space comes open. But sometimes in that attempt to measure how many people use the space, they will fail to get to the second step. And that is they will not tell anyone that it exists. And we have seen many institutions that have created multi-site Prayer, like prayer and meditation spaces on campuses, but never do any form of campaigning to tell people that all these spaces exist. And then a year or two down the road, when they're evaluating the spaces and they're saying, well, no one's using them, our first response is, does anyone even know? That is a great point, Cody, because when we created this space, that was one of the things that our space committee chair said, how are you going to know if the space is being used? And that's a very fair question. So we create the tools so that we know. And I report to him every semester 
on usage because that's important to him to the point that we're having a new unit of lockers and mother space being built brand new and i requested a reflective space there that was brand new because of the need because you're right unless people know they won't find it Yeah, I think that there's also something else that can help us transcend this conversation beyond just academic veterinary medicine, but even in practice and one of the trends that we're seeing, and certainly we see it at the colleges as well, when we talk about the loss of an animal, right? A lot of our colleges now have a reflective space (laughs) where families and owners can go to have a bit of time to deal with that loss. So some institutions actually actually have a space that may actually already be set up, but it's not really thought of conceptually more broadly as that reflective space, right? We think of these spaces even in human medicine, they have spaces where it's not just the chapel, but they have these other spaces where you have some of these more challenging conversations where you have time for reflection, you have just that quiet a quiet, well-appointed space, right? And even in some of the larger kind of clinical practices, we're seeing, you know, some elements of this kind of creeping in where if they have physical space in some of the larger privately owned practices, you'll see a space for it. You'll see kind of signposts like the practice that I take my animal to. You know, if there's a lit candle, then you know that there's something that someone may have lost an animal and that there's a physical space that's actually behind the scenes where they can take, you know, owners. So so for us, it might also be ways in which we think about what the spaces that we actually have and that we're using in different ways, because you might actually, again, especially since space is always at a premium at an academic institution. (laughs) I I actually have to share something with you. Lisa, thank you for talking about where you take Bradley. I actually had a colleague that had a loss in her family and she doesn't have a private space. And I actually went to her and I said, you can go and use 8228, that's the room number. And, and cry and, and be by yourself and you feel whole and come back to say, I didn't know I could use that space for that because I'm not playing. I say, yes, you can. So I, she went there and she said, I am so glad that you did that for me because I just couldn't. I was so sad about my loss and I just couldn't be at work and crying. And I said, spread the word because that is not just for prayer. It is yeah. to reflect and to be whole. So as we start wrapping up, Cody, I want to ask you what resources are available for colleges that want to kind of improve the way that they approach these things? What kinds of things may be available on your website? Where can they find more information? So the the website is convergenceoncampus.org. And there are a variety of different resources that we have available. Every week we have a weekly column that's produced from one of our experts that are out in the field. So we're kind of looking at different ways to approach this, maybe different messaging, packaging, all of these things that are out there, sort of sort of illuminating for staff and administrators what are the concerns that exist out there. We have a, a tri-annual magazine that highlights some of the successful stories going on, some of the institutions that are making successful strides in this area. And we have a monthly webinar series that we have. Beyond that, right now, there are a number of trainings that we have that we can bring to campus. And also one of maybe the most 
kind of the easiest deliverable for professionals that we can do is to start with a set of coaching calls with folks. We've come across a lot of administrators who have either been to some sort of a an interfaith like training or something like that, but sort of don't know what to do. Like this sort of like what happens next? And we're not going to be here to tell you that this is like the easiest thing to implement. And then in like an hour, we can give you all of the, the data on this. And so what no. we often say is that... I'm giving away the secrets, Cody. Come on. Right, exactly. <laughs> so what we often say is, is perhaps the best way is to start with some sort of like, in many ways, sort of a consultation call. And then what we often think about with you and with your institution and maybe with you or your unit or whoever it is that's sort of like championing this is we start thinking about maybe a set of sort of strategic coaching calls where we start thinking about what are the issues, what are the concerns, and how do we help propel this forward? Not to indulge this too far, but one of the big pieces and the challenges that we see on this is that oftentimes there are just too few of people on each campus who see this as important. So our lens is about building coalitions and looking at institutional outcomes as being a key way to get get investors and stakeholders in this. So if you look at your retention rates, if you look at your graduation rates, if you look at your mental health rates, if you look at your student satisfaction rates, all of these actually have data ties to religious and spiritual and non-religious practice and students that are actually involved in these communities and feel safe to bring that aspect of their spirituality have elevated levels in the right way and decreased incidence of mental health concerns that are there. So we often think about that this fits really key with admissions directors, international student recruitment folks, diversity and inclusion officers, and faculty and all of these different areas. And what we do is we sort of think about how do we build stakeholders through that narrative? And so that's sort of what we do with our coaching somewhat is that we start thinking about those kind of structures. Great. Thank you. And yeah. certainly, you know, I think that this is something that we talk a lot about recruiting at AAVMC and in, in uh, across the veterinary schools and kind of what does the future of recruiting look like. And, you know, one of the things that I certainly in, in, with all of our member institutions talk about is the, not only the importance of recruiting, but kind of telling folks what it is that you have available and coaching applicants to ask the kind of questions that, right. you know, highlight what's important to them and that these are things that that folks kind of want to know. And, and when they come to visit campus, whether it's through a pre-application visit or um, whether they're interviewing and you're all kind of, we also know that part of interviewing, the interview process is also kind of recruiting, getting them on campus, getting them to see what's there, what's available, and kind of ha- helping them see themselves there, that this is also a part of academic identity will be as well, right? Right. What they're also bringing. So, you know, be sure to tell folks that this is also, you know, that, hey, here's our reflective space. Here's how we talk about religious accommodation. Here's how we handle things in the clinic. We already know, like we know, you mentioned kind of the dietary thing. Well, in veterinary medicine... (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, there's there's the meat folks, there's the non-meat folks, there's the folks that are pescatarian. I mean, we've got it all, right? And so there, I think that there is a, already a pretty high level at most places of sensitivity around the variety of dietary needs as a core thing, but actually being overt and, and direct and talking about it kind of destigmatizes all of this and really kind of um, eliminates that taboo associated with it. And that's on the institution to eliminate that. In fact, if I may say something, Cody made a good point about retention data. When students feel isolated and they're not engaged, Tintos and Pascarella research says that we're going to lose them. That is just a known fact from research. So what I like to be able to create here is a uh, feeling of inclusion and being valued at this institution because that will impact my retention and student wellness and happiness. So it's not, to me, I tell my team, do not invite them to the party, which is Michigan State College of Veterinary Medicine, if you're not going to ask them to dance. And asking them to dance requires intentional effort and work. For example, we're welcoming 115 students in September. And my new team, because it's a new office, I told them everybody is, you know, you are there is command performance. And I have some people said to me, but I have too much work. I said, well, you're here because they're paying your your salary. So <laughs> everyone needs to show up to the party because I want our students to know that we're here to welcome them, but that we are willing to dance with them because that's what being included is all about. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, Bill, we wish you luck with the implementation. It sounds like you're all like you're all ready and we look forward to hearing how things go. I'll definitely be checking in later maybe this year for a quickie follow-up bonus. <laughs> yeah. I gotta I gotta reflect on what Hilda said. So yeah, you you bring him to the dance, you gotta invite him, you know, you bring him to the to the party, but you're not gonna invite him to dance. Well, first thing you gotta do is actually have a dance floor. Yes. Yes. Oh, I like that. These metaphors. I love that. I love that, Bill. Get a dance floor. Get a dance floor, host a party, and invite them to dance. Can that be your bit line for the whole, like, can that be your title for this uh, podcast? (laughs) I like that. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, well, we look forward to hearing what happens at WSU and how things go. We know that things will go swimmingly. Cody, thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to certainly at AAVMC continuing our discussions and finding ways for you to connect with our member institutions. And also Cody is working on his dissertation. So we are all like going to send him lots and lots of positive energy. Thank you. It's going to be over real soon. It's going to be over and it's going to be awesome because why? The best dissertation is a done dissertation. <laughs> and Hilda, as always, we are so grateful at AAVMC for your participation in this and certainly the work that you're doing at Michigan State. So thank you. Thank you to all three of you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you.
And so with that, we will end another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air. Be sure to like this episode. You can find us on every podcast app out there. Be sure to subscribe and like so that folks can find us. Be sure to also take a look on Facebook for our Facebook page, which is AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air podcast. You can find it. Click the like button and you can find all kinds of great articles and images and all kinds of really cool things about diversity and inclusion in higher ed very broadly, but also specifically in veterinary medicine. So with that, I will bid my guests adieu and we will see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa.